Hi, did you miss me? For those of you tuning back in, and for those of you just joining us on this journey, my name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. I restarted my journey with former Major General Doron Almog. He's a man who's lived two lives. One, as a general in the IDF, and the other, as a founder of the Adi Negev Nahalat Iran Rehabilitation Center, named for his son, Iran, of blessed memory. But all good things happen in threes, and his third life is about to begin. He'll tell you this is a Jewish journey, and in many ways, he's right. But it's far more epic than that. More painful than a cliche, more fruitful than fiction, more urgent than words can convey. He's calm, centered, and not nearly as militant as I imagined. Though he's disciplined and at ease, with himself, with his country, and with the task that sits at his fingertips. The journey that awaits him in the months and years ahead. In order to understand Duron, we must venture back into the past, into his childhood, into the Israel that he grew up in, the family he built with his wife, and the love he has for his son Iran, who taught him gratitude and grace. Days before our conversation, Duron was approved unanimously by the nomination committee of the Jewish Agency for Israel, ending an 18-plus month search for the new chairman of the Jewish Agency. This coveted job is one of the most prestigious in the Israeli and Jewish world, but it's not why I invited him to be interviewed. There's something deeper, there's something more special about Daron Almog than any one title or role can even convey. We'd planned this interview before his nomination, and after the news got out, I was just sure he would cancel. I was sure he would find a better way to spend his time, as he's ascending to probably one of the biggest jobs in Israeli government and biggest jobs in the Jewish world. But here he sat, in my living room, in my apartment, on my couch, with comfort, as if he'd been here before, as if we'd met before, like two old friends, separated by generations and time, just merely catching up. Except we hadn't met until just now. A man from the headlines of the Israeli and Jewish press, on my couch, ready to dive into his story its joys and misfortunes, treasures and tragedies, with honesty and integrity few men have. He was, as he's always been, at ease. This is my conversation with Doron Almog, the most likely candidate to be the next chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel. I'm honored to have in my apartment one of Israel's most celebrated soldiers and generals. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. I don't even know where to begin. You know, you have one of the coolest Wikipedia pages in all of the Jewish-Israeli world. If you were to be an objective viewer of your life, 
where is the pivotal moment that you would start? <laughs> my birth, you know, my parents, my childhood. I born to parents who, both of them, Sabra, both of them born here in Palestine, as a matter of fact, uh, under the British mandate. They had one dream in their head, to have one day a Jewish state. And the Jewish state is something that they indoctrinated us, is the holiest thing. They were secular, they were not religious, but they fought in 48, you know, where we call it the silver plater generation for the song of Alterman, the silver plater. They paid high toll, lost 6,000 in uh, our independence war. This is a generation that uh, I've never seen uh, my parents crying. This generation fully committed to the only Jewish state in the world. And above, above this statement, they educated us that for this country, we need to be ready to risk our life, maybe to give our life, to sacrifice ourselves for defending the only Jewish state. That was their dream. That was the, their concept about the importance of the only Jewish state. And they were tested a few times uh, in my life. First time after the Yom Kippur War, my brother was killed. I was 22. He was 20. He was the uh, armor platoon commander, the 7th Brigade fighting in the Golanites. I fought in Sinai. The rumor said both of us were killed. At the end of the war, I arrived to telephone, call home. My mom said, we lost Iran. We have no Iran anymore. I came home. There was no Shiva. There was no Shiva. Uh, they were buried in temporary cemeteries. And I moved to the Golanites. I found his burnt tank, found his torn helmet, uh, his pistol, piece of his clothes, his razor. And later I did my own investigation with soldiers from his platoon. And I learned to know that he was left behind. And he was evacuated, dead already, seven days later. He was bleeding for seven days. He could be saved. Um, I was crazy. I was so frustrated, running on a mountain, shouting his name, thinking he must appear. It's impossible that uh, he's missing. And um, two years after the Yom Kippur War, the paratrooper company commander called me and said, you are the best uh, commander in our brigade, the best company commander in our brigade. I want, I want you to be the commander of the reconnaissance, the Sayeret Sanhanim, which is the most prestigious, but also the most risky. And um, he said, but you are a bereaved family. I don't know if I have the moral to send you first to any mission. I don't know if I have the power to go to your parents if you are killed. So I told him, go now. Go now, speak with my parents now. So he came to my parents' house. My mom looked at him, said, you trust your own? said, yes, you can send him to any mission. And if he's killed, we know how to face it. We lost Iran, we lost one son, we know. To protect our country, we need to be ready to give uh, the highest price. My father said every bereaved family would say that uh, the other children would not continue serving in combat unit. We won't survive. So he got back, he called me, say got the mission. In this respect, I was also the first Israeli soldier to land in Entebbe. So he was the one to give me the mission, but many other missions to be 
French soldiers behind the enemy line. It happened again with my mom. My third brother was 14 in the Yom Kippur War. When our second brother was killed, he was 14 at high school. And uh, he joined the military. He joined Sayyarat Matkal, 1978. I don't know. I don't know if you remember or not. Um, April 1980, a few terrorists penetrated the kindergarten in Kibbutz Misgavam, took hostages, killed few. And um, Modi, my third brother, was at home. He came after mission. He was deadly tired, slept on on his bed with his clothes. Suddenly the telephone rang. My mom raised the telephone. And uh, they said, uh, we are from Sayyid Matkal, from Modi's unit. Immediately send him back to the unit. She said, he's deadly tired. I'm not awaking him until you say, why? So, you know, they are shushu. They, they don't say too much, but uh, she broke them. <laughs> and, they said, and they said, terrorists took over the kindergarten in Kibbutz Mizgavam. His team is the one to break inside and kill the terrorists. Please awake him and send him to the unit. So bereaved my bereaved mom. Seven years after my second brother was killed, get to the bed, shook Modi, told him, go back to your unit. Terrorists took over the kindergarten in Misgavam, and this is your mission now. And he told us at her uh, 90th birthday. So this is... My parents' house, you know, Isaac sacrificed in the Bible. It's not only a Bible story. It's, it is in my house. I'm telling you because for my parents, the most important thing was the only Jewish state after 2,000 years of diaspora getting back. And as I told you, they born here in Palestine after, under the British mandate. And uh, they expected that one day the Brits will leave Palestine and they will fight. They assess that after the last Brit will leave Palestine, the Arab armies will invade the Lebanese, the Syrian, the Jordanian, the Egyptian, and others would come in addition to the local Palestinian here. And that's what happened. So as, as I said, they paid highest high toll, but they expected that one day we'll have a peace with our neighbors. I don't see in, in, in the near future, I don't see a peace, but um, what I feel above all that my parents gave me this stubbornness and patriotism, understanding that this is my generation responsibility to protect the only Jewish country and to ensure its survival as they did in their time, their period. Where do you think that came from? Where in their story do you, you think know, that my, was planted? On my father's side, they came from Ukraine, 1910, after the pogrom of 1903, 1903, 1905. They were rich. They sold everything uh, and came to Palestine, bought land near Kfar Saba, in Kfar Saba, what is now Kfar Saba. And my father born in Kfar Saba. My father born 1927. My mom born 1929 in Rishon Lezion. And from my um, mother's side, her father, my grandfather from my mother's side, born, have been for a generation here in, in Palestine. Her mom, she came from Poland. However, 
both of them, Sabra, both of them were very tough. My mom's still alive. She's very tough. She's 93. Wow. Yeah, she's still alive. And, um, and one thing that I told you, they emphasized that the most important thing is the only Jewish state. But the other thing was my discovery on their attitude toward severely disabled children like my son, Iran. 11 years after the Yom Kippur War, our second child was born. We have a daughter, she's 43, doctor, beautiful, four grandchildren. Uh, five years after her, our second child was born. Named after your brother. Uh, we, of course, it was only natural to give him the name of my brother that was killed in the Yom Kippur War, to expect that, the, that he would be better than us, you know, the family dream, parent dream, that the child would be much better than us. A source of pride. And shortly after his birth, we understood something wrong. Iran is a child who lived with us 23 years. He has never spoken one word, never made eye contact. So at first we saw no reaction to click. You click just in front of his eyes, nothing. Clap hands, nothing. No reaction. We thought he's deaf. And we started testing another test, another test. At the age of eight months, he was diagnosed by a psychologist who told Didi and me, your son is having a combination of autism and retardation. This is the word she said, retardation. In Hebrew, pigur, mefagir. She said, probably he will never speak. Probably he will stay mentally child at age three, four months forever. That was a shock for Didi, my wife and me. Didi started crying. And then the next two, two years were a debate, ongoing debate, how we continue. And I was a special force unit commander. I was the commander of Shaldag, did operation all over the Middle East. In Sudan, I did operation to bring Jews from Ethiopia, from the Sudani desert, together with Mossad and other places. Very difficult time. We bring children, we want them to be better than us, and then we understood you won't be graduated of kindergarten. Nothing. You need to give up the dream of parents. And this child who has never spoken one word is like saying, my dear father, are you ready to be my father just for a smile? Just to make me happy? That's all, my dear father. And then we started moving all over the country to see where these children are placed. We saw awful, shameful institute, stinky, ignored, abused. Can't believe you opened the door, you got a blow of stink, and then distorted faces of children who were afraid from the world and shameful stuff. No pride. You know, every place you want pride. I'm Google, I'm Air Force, I'm Shayetet, I'm Sayat Matkala, you know. Pride. No pride, you know, that, that was so awful. And, and then the sound of my child saying, my dear father, there's no place for me here. And this is your internal dialogue that you have with yourself in a world parallel universe where your son can speak to you. And that is a ping pong that goes back and forth in your yeah. head. Yeah. And it continue until now, you know, he passed away 15 years ago, but... Uh, oh, he passed. I'm so sorry. He passed away 15 years ago. 2007, he passed away from rare disease. So when he was uh, 18, 
we got a formal letter from Israel Ministry of Education saying, when your son reached 21, he won't be able to continue studying any longer in special education school. You know, it's uh, like early warning. And this is the law in Israel, special education law until now. Special education law bound the state treatment from age three to 21. He was diagnosed at the age eight months. So what between eight months to three? Up to you. You know, we say, we're all responsible one for each other. We say, and the child, my child saying, oh, my dear father, this is bluff. You know, you, know, you glorify yourself by nice title, like uh, mutual responsibility, uh, loving any humankind. Like Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva said that uh, you are bluffing yourself and you are bluffing me and you don't want me and you, you want children like me overseas, not here. Here, you want only strong, powerful people. By the way, my dear father, just in a split second, you can find yourself in my position, in a wheelchair, in one of your action, behind enemy line, you got a bullet like Elsko Sorin in Entebbe. And, and then what? You want to be removed from the only Jewish state somewhere to Switzerland, to a church or monastery or whatever. You want to be said that, that there is no place for you, for you because you are weak. By the way, my dear father, do you remember the children like me were killed by Hitler order, Hitler in Second World War, T4 Aktia? When Second World War started, September 1st, 1939, Hitler issued T4 Aktia. T4 Aktia saying, shifting the psychiatric center all over Germany to small concentration camp, gather the retarded, kill them first by small gas chambers. So he's like saying, shouting from inside. My dear father, remember six million were killed by racist ideology. And we, children like me, were killed first. Uh, we were the pilot program in the first two years. The big destruction program started in 1941, all written in Vanze document. My dear father, what a shame. For him, I decided to leave the military when I was major general, the commander of the Israeli South Command, after getting this formal letter from Israeli Minister of Education saying when he comes to 21, he won't be able to continue studying any longer in special education school. As I said, this is the law in Israel, special education law. So we decided to build a village for severely disabled children like him. But not institute. We decided on very creative model. We call it until now social community center or integrative community center. What does it mean? You know, in the past, these children were kept in institute, close behind fence, walls, and also heavy walls of shame and stigma. And so we decided to break down the walls of shame and stigma and uh, integrate them. But uh, it's not kind of uh, disabled that could be integrated in ordinary community get up in the morning, go to work. No, yes, he was 100% cognitively, physically disabled. So we said, we'll bring the community inside. How come? Number one, rehabilitation. We are the only 
rehabilitation center for people, ordinary people living in south of Israel, from Kiryat Gat to Elat, about one million people. So we serve severely disabled, like our son, right now in the village. We have 170 permanent residents, and from the other side, the one million people who are living in south of Israel, all of a sudden having road accident, home accident, uh, some disease, stroke, brain stroke, or a heart stroke, whatever, we treat them together. In the same hydrotherapy center, you may see mayor of uh, regional municipality, you may see high-tech members, students, and residents of the village, children like him. And they may be also Bedouin. So we have some from the Bedouin community because in south of Israel they are Bedouin living in, in the south. Right now we have 600 workers. From the 600 workers we have also 100 Bedouins, Muslims. And also we have many Christians, volunteers from Europe, from Holland, from Germany, from uh, Taiwan. Number when did one, you establish the center? We started planning when I started uh, my term as the commander of the Southern Command, 2001, we started planning the program. We also registered Amuta Foundation, non-profit organization. We did a ceremony while I was in uniform as the commander of the Southern Command, 2003, June 2003, together with Ariel Sharon, the Prime Minister. If you Google my name, you may see picture. We are sitting together and uh, I'm in with uniform. And we started the construction 2004, we opened 2006. It's huge real estate center, and uh, we did it very fast. Three years planning, starting to build 2004, opened 2006. It spread right now over 160 dunam, which is about 40 acres. Wow. But we got lately more 200 acres, which is about 800 dunam for building a community for 500 families. So how we do the integration? Number one, rehabilitation. Number two, education. What does it mean, education? We have ordinary kindergarten for children from age one. Ordinary kids living in south of Israel. They come 8 a.m., live 4 p.m., but we integrate them with disabled. And we teach the children from age one what is social responsibility. We teach them by the presence around them of disabled. They see people in wheelchair, they see people after brain stroke, they see wounded, they see soldiers, they see around them many wounded people. So, you know, from age one, they understand that the wounded is integral part of our society. So this is number two, education. Number three, visits. We have in, in Judaism, mitzvah bikur cholim. So every day until COVID started, 100 people arriving, about 10,000 people, visitors a year, 10,000, which is high number. And uh, right now we started again, the one, 100 visitors a day. We have staffers just to take and tour and explain the model. And number four, which is highly important, is volunteer. We have uh, 800 volunteers. It's uh, very important addition to our manpower, but above all, every volunteer saying I'm more given than giving. I'm educated by my work here as volunteer. And I got humble 
by working with severely disabled people, and I got proportion in my life, what's important, what's less important. So the village is uh, eye-opening, shaking anyone who comes to visit. Many writes in our memo book, I got my life until this visit and after, and my life is changed. I need to go back. I'm inspired by your work. I need to think. Now, just think about aging people, for instance. We have all over the country people over 80 in a nursing home. Some of them passed away from loneliness during COVID-19. Some of them, you know, I got a, a letter from a major journal Reserve Shlomo Gazit. He was the head of intelligence when we flew to Entebbe. But uh, April 12, 2020, that was the first month after COVID. And it was lockdown all over the country. And he was in nursing home alone. And a day after Leila Seder, he wrote email to many friends. I was among them. Written yesterday was Leila Seder. This is my first time Leila Seder I did alone. I read the Agadah myself. The food was put at the door from the outside and um, I left the door closed. Elia won't come. And a few months later, he passed away from loneliness. Now, when we spoke about social distancing, two meters, you remember, uh, face mask and so on, okay, important to protect ourselves, but Elderly people passed away from loneliness at this time. And I'm telling you, no reason, it's not justified to leave the weakest in our society. It doesn't matter if they are old people, if they are disabled, like my son, at all our institutes all over the country, to leave them alone. If you remember in Italy, the staff left, ran away, left the aging people, and some of them passed away because they couldn't do anything by their power. So there's no reason from my point of view, from according to my concept of uh, integrative community center, no reason why not to build nursing home, for instance, together with kindergarten, together with elementary school. No reason that in every elementary school, students... At six or seven, age of six or seven or eight, one volunteer, one hour a week with elderly people. Mitzvat Bikur Cholim, we have in Judaism visit the, the deceased, visit the old, respect the old. We say in Judaism, respect the old people. What we mean when we say respect the old people to bring the Filipino and allow the, only those workers coming from uh, Romania or Filipino or China uh, to assist my mom or grandparents or what about us? What about, uh, what about Tikkun Olam? What about uh, us as Jews? What's our mission in, in this world? How do you wrestle? Because I, I sense that you wrestle with as you pivoted away from the army and into Tikkun Olam, rebuilding of Israeli society. How did you wrestle with your obligation and responsibility for the country, for the army, but also family and uh, your own 
responsibility as a father? In many aspects, it's the same. You know, in, in military, you educate soldiers. You want them to be motivated. You want to trust them. You want to demand. You need to love them. You know, commander cannot lead soldiers in battle time, in war time. You, know, you need to take, they need to create trust. First of all, this is leadership. Trust and personal example, it's the same. You know, when I came with this kind of model, first of all, every worker in my village need to look at my eyes. If I mean it, this is serious. And at the foundation of our Judaism, we have it. We have the social responsibility. We have We have the values. But we set boundaries like only for those who are capable. If you are disabled, okay, you're placed in hospital or some institute, and uh, this is not our business. And we say, yes, it is our business. It's family business, number one, but it's also business of our society. Otherwise, yeah, you can create a social commitment, social responsibility. It's the same in military. If you are wounded in battle, who will take you out? Who will, ev- who will evacuate you? You trust your friends, your comrades. And it's the same in our society. But if parents choose shame, you know, enveloping them by shame, never tell the neighbors, never share. So it's a, it's a block. You create a block between parents and the the individual or the family problem, the family problem by not sharing a secret, a family secret inside, isolating the disabled inside. So you block the society. And in our society, we have people loaded with good values, like in military. In military, we say one for all, all for one. Never leave the wounded in a field. You have the Basically, you have it. So, yes, in a way, to take the genuine values from military, from Judaism, values of 2,000 years of diaspora, or if you want, 3,000 years of our Jews, and implement them in this case also. And my parents, I started telling you first about my parents, but my parents also, like Igal Alon, my parents' generation taught that disabled, like our son, cognitively disabled, cognitively impaired, are not worse for our society. No, they need to be closed in institute. No one come to visit. When, when I was a child and we moved near special need children institute, my parents, ah, they're disabled. They're, and move on, continue. This is not a place to volunteer. This is not a place to visit. And if our son was not born, probably I would be with the same attitude, holding the same attitude, thinking that uh, this is not none of my, none of our business. So in in this respect, our child, my child, Iran Almog, the child was never said one word, never made eye contact. Is the greatest professor of my life. He taught me more than any other human being what is commitment, what is love. And this is the reason to establish this wonderful village 
building a hospital, building a community for 500 families, building dormitories for students, for our staff, for volunteers. We have a Tikkun Olam program with the Israeli Ministry of Education spread all over the country, starting from elementary school to high school, teaching inclusion, teaching how we should accept those who are unable those disabled who fully dependent in our power. And uh, I still committed, I'm saying that um, my life is, uh, is the legacy of my two Iran. My brother that was bleeding near his burnt tank and our son who came just to the last minutes of my brother bleeding in the field and lived 23 years like the wounded, the social wounded in our society. The child that uh, asking all the time, my dear father, I need your assistance. I can't survive by myself. I have uh, two final questions. You know, I think when people pass, especially when they pass in a tragic circumstance, it's usually common that we, we, we allow the tragedy to define them and not the, the moments of happiness or inspiration that they lived through. Would you be able to share maybe one story that brings a smile to your face about either your son or your brother? How many stories are uh, bringing smile? You know, the smile and uh, and pain are going together all the time. My brother had a great sense of humor. Uh, he wrote me many letters. Uh, like uh, in one of them, he wrote, uh, "I got one hundred in mathematics, literature, chemistry, physics." Not in each one of them. And they all four <laughs> together. <laughs> he had a great uh, sense of humor, great sense of humor. And our son, he never spoken, but uh, everything that, that he did was so strange, but also funny. The way he ran, the way he eat. Uh, we were dining around the table, but uh, he had no manners. So he could come and go to your plate and take something he couldn't speak. I like hummus, or I like pita, or I want cake, or I want water. You know, he looks, he can't speak. I want that, I don't like that. So he grabs something that, uh, and, and <laughs> go to all the people around the table and take something from this plate and that plate and other plate. <laughs> and uh, everything was so unique, so funny. You know, it depends you know, how you take it. But yes, uh, sadness and, uh, and funny things come together. And it's up to us to, to decide how we, what is our attitude, what our approach in respect of um, the absence of those people who are leaving us, like my brother, like our son. They continue. They have a presence all the time. You know, my brother was killed... 73, next year, it will be 50 years. He was wow. 20 when he was killed in the Yom Kippur. 49 years, he's not with us, but he continue his presence. He is living with me every day, every hour. You know, I go in the street, I see soldiers, I smell someone with uh, overall tanks on his body, the, the smell of grease, of uh, fire, of ammunition, training, fire training in military, all my services. Uh, I was all the time stimulated by 
noises, uh, sights, smell that remind me uh, what he would do uh, and his presence and uh, and every year could be married, could be father, could be grandfather. We continue when we continue remembering and taking without him. The physical presence is not here, but he is, he is here with us. And it was the reason my brother for long military service, my oath near his burnt tank to never leave the wounded behind. That was for him. And later another commitment uh, for our child to never leave the weakest behind to assist him and to be deserved the title human being by our behavior is like defining us, our attitude toward disabled, like saying, my dear father, listen, I'm less than 1% of population, but what about the 99%? You know, if you leave me in the street, what, what does it say about you and the 99%? What kind of human being are you? Do you really deserve the title human being? If you put me in some monastery or overseas, or, or, or just leave me behind, so, wow. or maybe ignore me, maybe abuse me. So they define our humanity. And this is my second commitment in life. And uh, as I said, my life dedicated to disabled like him. And maybe now I'm taking the third commitment to strengthen the Jewish people by... Uh, chairman of the Jewish agency, starting another Jewish journey. Me and my wife and the society in Israel starting another journey to unite our people. And to always remember that uh, we have one Jewish state. Um, like your mom told you. Like our parents said, uh, we need to guarantee that this state, this only Jewish state, not only survive and prevail, and we should guarantee that it always prevail against a threat that is done by Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, all around, missiles, military, attack, war, but also by splitted society. We need to unite our people, and we don't have the privilege to lose one segment. We need to unite, all of us, the orthodox, the conservative, the reformed, the traditional, the seculars, together to be united, one people, strong, to guarantee our existence by this unity. Wow. The last question is, what's one line or saying or mantra that sticks in your head that enables you to keep this fire burning within you to pursue your life's missions? The distortion of Jews' values by our society. The distortion and adoption of uh, ignorance, concealing children like him, handling these children to Christians or some institute overseas, that created so much frustration inside me. And this frustration gave me power. And him, of course him, Shouting from inside, shouting from, from his silence. Fight for me, my dear father. You flew to Entebbe, my dear father, to save 105 Israeli hostages. 
But my dear father, they were, they were one week hostage. I'm hostage from birth, unable to do anything by my power. My dear father, will you make a social entebe for me? The village is something like social entebe. So the pain and frustration and the gap between our values, declared values from one side and the reality on the other side. That frustration pushed me forward to take responsibility and not to surrender, never raise hand and fight for him and create a better society. Amen. If anyone can do it, it's you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. There's something special about sitting with someone on the heels of a great adventure. There's something even more special about the active love he has for his deceased brother and son. There's a soul to this man that stuck with me. We end our conversation, and again, I expect him to rush out. I wouldn't judge him if he left. He's busy, he's important, and he'd given me already so much of his time, of his story, of his pain and life's work. And yet, he wouldn't get up from the couch, chatting and chatting, asking and listening, taking calls from friends and strangers alike before and after the interview. He's a natural connector, not of contacts, but of people. A man who has floated through life, coupling his pain and memories to make his country and people more whole, all while knowing and remembering that he is part of a larger, deeper story the Jewish story. He doesn't yearn for the attention and the honor that will come with his next role in this next chapter, but it's here. Service doesn't come knocking when you ask for it. It comes when it needs you. And yet he hears this familiar call of service and of duty. He'll answer it. But first, for now, he'll sit on the couch of an Ole Chadash who just an hour ago was a stranger, asking about listening to, engaging with one small member of the people he's gearing up to lead. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi, and our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zayn. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>